I'm Sue Alvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 49. And I've got a lot of things I want to talk about today. I've had a really good week. I've learned a lot. I think my girls have as well. We've been on some wonderful learning adventures this week. And I want to share some of the things that we've been doing and give you some ideas to think about, about how we can use documentaries and TV shows to learn from. Also, how to record it all in our Homeschool Records books. And also, how to find maths in our everyday experiences. Everybody says that maths is everywhere in the world. But I sat down in the week and had a look at my records book and I discovered that we didn't have very many maths notes in my Evernote notebook. I began to wonder what I was going to do about this. Where is all this maths that everybody says is surrounding us? So I had to think about that, and I did come up with some maths experiences that I could add to my notebook. So I'm going to tell you all about that. So I hope all that sounds interesting, and you'll listen to this episode. Last week I was telling you about some documentaries that I've been watching with my girls. That's Gemma Rose, who's 11, and Sophie, who is 14. I discovered several art documentaries in the sidebar on YouTube. I don't know what I was watching at the time, but I just glanced in the sidebar and saw these documentaries, which sounded interesting. So I invited the girls to watch them with me. We sat down in the week and we thoroughly enjoyed them. Now, I did give you the titles of three of them last week, and I'll give them to you again. They're Alastair Sook documentaries. He's the the presenter. He's a British art critic. The first one was What Makes Art Valuable? The second one, The World's Most Expensive Stolen Paintings. And the third, How to Paint a Queen, a Culture Show Special. And before I go any further, I did write something about this on my blog a week or so ago, but the documentaries I'm recommending might have some adult content. I think this is inevitable with ones to do with art. The first documentary does talk just a little about Picasso's love life because it influences his paintings. So saying that, you might like to view any of my recommendations first before watching them with your children. Even even if you decide that they're not suitable for your children, you might just want to show them a clip or two because they do have some interesting content. These three documentaries set us off on an art adventure. Yes, we've been exploring art. I really love how one day our learning might seem pretty ordinary. We've got to the end of what we're learning about and we don't know in which direction we're going to be headed next. And all of a sudden, something like a documentary can spark off a a completely different interest and we find ourselves racing along in a new direction, absolutely fascinated by another topic. And this is what happened this week and last week, of course, too. Now, I think documentaries are a wonderful way of learning. Of course, they're not made with children in mind, so they might have adult content. But the upside is that because they're not made for children, 
as an educational re resource, they're usually a lot more entertaining. They're made to capture the interest of a general audience, to appeal to anybody. And I guess if they weren't interesting, that is entertaining, nobody would want to watch them on primetime TV. Now, years ago, when I was in my Charlotte Mason phase, I did all sorts of art things with my kids, very typical things like like having a painting of the week and displaying it and talking about it with my children, getting them to narrate it back to me, getting them to draw a section of it or even the whole painting. My children weren't really happy with this. It didn't capture their imaginations at all, even though they did learn to identify a great many paintings. It didn't give them a love of art. And maybe there are children who are just not interested in art. How do we present it to them? Well, I think documentaries are a great way. What if I said to a child, do you want to hear about the biggest art theft ever? A $5 million reward was offered uh, for any information leading to the recovery of the paintings, and so far the paintings haven't been recovered. Do you think that would spark an interest in a child? Or would you like to hear about how the famous painting, the Mona Lisa, was stolen in broad daylight? I think a lot of people have a fascination with things like art theft. How did the criminals do it? It's all very sad, really, because as Alastair Sook says in one of his documentaries, it really is criminal that our great works of art are being stolen by people who want to make money out of them. They have no love for art, these criminals. They're just interested in making an awful lot of money. But somehow we seem to have a fascination for things like art thefts, just as we have a fascination I was talking about a few weeks ago for solving murder cases. Another question, did you know Queen Elizabeth I destroyed all the paintings of herself that she didn't like? I don't think that's much different from people today. I think a lot of us delete photos of ourselves that we don't like, or those not quite perfect ones. But it is interesting to think about a queen who wants to project a certain image. She wants to remain young in the eyes of her subject. So she has the final say on which paintings are allowed to survive. We were talking about that after we were watching the documentary, How to Paint a Queen. While we were watching that documentary, we had a swift journey back in history as well. We looked at all the kings and queens from the time of King Henry VIII up to Elizabeth II. So not only did we do creative arts while we were watching the documentary, I was also able to label my notes history and HSIE. Now these things might not seem important until you have to fill in homeschool records books. I try to do that as quietly as possible as a sideline to my girls' learning. But I'm always looking for opportunities to record learning experiences so that we can get our registrations approved and so my girls can continue unschooling. So from that point of view, looking out for things to record in my notebooks, that's very important. Now yesterday we discovered a new art series. This series is called Art of the Heist. And the episode we saw yesterday was called 
The Man Who Stole the Mona Lisa. I don't think that this episode was as good as the Alastair Sook ones, but the girls did enjoy it. And we did learn a little bit about art along the way, as well as learning about the man who walked into the Louvre and stole the painting in broad daylight. We also learned a little bit about the Mona Lisa and how Leonardo da Vinci painted it and how paintings age. The surface of this painting has cracked and all those cracks are like a fingerprint for the painting so that it is very easy to tell the original painting from a forgery. Now there's another art series that we haven't yet had a look at so I can't tell you anything about it except for the title and the blurb I read about it. It's called The Artful Codgers. It sounded really fascinating. A group of senior people, I'm not sure exactly how old, people that are in their 70s and 80s, I think, people that everybody regarded as old age pensioners, quiet people, were in fact forging great works of art in their shed and getting away with it, selling them to museums and art galleries all around the world. And no one expected them at all. So I want to go and have a look at that because that does sound to me very fascinating. Yeah, capturing the imagination. Now I want to describe what I've been doing while my girls have been watching these documentaries. Of course, I've been watching them as well with them. We've been sitting side by side. I've been Chromecasting the videos from YouTube. I didn't even have to go out and buy them. They're all there on YouTube. So we set up the TV, start Chromecasting. The girls settle down to enjoy. I watch with one eye and have my computer on my lap. And I'm listening for things that I can research while we're watching. As each of the paintings is mentioned, I do a quick Google search, trying to find an image of that painting and a short description. I have my Evernote notebook open. I copy and paste an image of each painting into a note in my notebook so that we have a record of it. And of course, a title and who it was by and what year it was painted, that type of thing. So later on, the girls can go and have a look at these paintings, remember what they'd learnt in the documentary. As well as copying and pasting images of paintings, I quickly do a search for more information about the things that we're hearing. I found a few Alastair Sook articles on the internet and I clipped those into my notebook as well. And when we were watching the documentary about the stolen paintings, I did find a Google Art Project virtual tour through the Gardner Museum. Thirteen paintings were stolen from the Gardner Museum a long time ago and they haven't yet been recovered. And the museum has put together a presentation about these thirteen paintings. You can see the purchase receipts. There's lots of information about them. You can zoom in on the paintings. You can see the paintings in old photos where they used to hang on the museum walls. You can also take a tour around the museum in present day times and see the empty frames on the wall where the paintings used to be. Because the Gardner Museum has left the frames up on the wall, I guess they're hoping that the paintings will be returned and once more they will display them in their original positions. There's a beautiful work called the Ghent Altarpiece and one of the panels of that piece was stolen. It has never been recovered and 
In the altarpiece itself, that panel is a reproduction. But I found a website where we can look at the Ghent altarpiece in great detail, can zoom in on it, and there's a lot of information about it, so I clipped that into my notebook as well. Various other websites I found and articles as well, and I just put them all into my Evernote notebook. And later on, I mentioned that they were there to the girls, and we had a quick look through them. I said, this is some additional information about what we've been watching today. If you'd like to go and have a closer look, then you'll find it in your Evernote notebooks because it is a shared notebook. And the girls have done that. They've gone and had a look. As well as benefiting the girls, I have those notes there for registration purposes as well. It's very clear what the girls did this week and last week as far as creative arts goes and history as well. The other afternoon, once I'd finished adding all these creative arts things into my notebooks, I began to think about maths. I had to scroll through my notebook for the week and there weren't any maths notes. And I thought, what am I going to do about this? I'm not going to say to the girls, come on, we've got to do some maths. We've got to fill up the notebook. I wanted a different approach. I thought, well, everybody says there's maths everywhere, all around us. Why aren't I seeing it? I'm, there must be some maths that the girls have done that I'm just not seeing. So I sat there and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. My mind went on to all these art documentaries that we've been watching and I thought, was there any maths in these documentaries? And there was. Not just the prices. These paintings were sold for millions of dollars or millions of pounds. And that's numbers and that's money. And that has a certain limit to it as far as making a note from, from it. I don't want to say to the girls, which one was the most expensive painting and which was the least expensive painting and can you find the difference between the two or what was the average price of their top 10 most expensive paintings. That's like giving them a maths exercise to do and I'm sure they really wouldn't want to do that. That would take the pleasure out of learning about art away completely. What I noticed was the auctions. We'd watched a number of auctions where these paintings were being sold. And I thought, why don't I go and find out how Sotheby's art auctions work? So I did a bit of Googling and I found an article called How Does a Sotheby's Art Auction Work? And it had lots of keywords like the reserve, the bidder, the buyer's premium, which is the amount of money the buyer has to pay on top of his winning bid. Yet yeah, to Sotheby's, I suppose. That all involves percentages. The article talks about what a potential bidder has to do before they are allowed to bid. I discovered that the Sotheby's auctions are English auctions, which has nothing to do with England itself. Not be it is to do with the type of auction that it is that people bid against each other and the highest bidder wins. Whereas I think the Dutch auction, everybody makes a secret bid and the highest one wins. But nobody gets to know what the other bids are. They just make their own bid. They only get one chance. So I found another article about the glossary of auction terms. 
fair market price, hammer price, reserve, bid increment, the seller's commission, all types of words like this. And we talked about some of these as we were watching the documentary. And again, I had a little bit of a chat with my girls afterwards. They thought this was all very interesting. I clipped that document into my notebook. The girls can go and have a closer read of it later. It's all to do with financial maths, I suppose. Even though we'd watched some Sotheby's auctions in the documentaries, I also went to YouTube and I found a small clip of an auctioneer selling The Scream. It was only a minute or two long, and I also clipped that into my notebook as an example of a Sotheby's auction. The girls and I watched that together after reading all about auctions. All those points were fresh in our minds, and we were able to watch the auction and understand exactly what was going on. Talking of auctions led me to another thought. That same day, we'd bought a Wii console. Well, the girls had bought it. They'd clubbed together for a second-hand Wii console. One of these uh, game consoles that people were playing a few years ago, and our girls never had one, and now people are selling the older versions, and our girls are thinking, wow, we could afford one of those. We might have a bit of fun with that. So they put together a little bit of money, went on eBay, and had a look around. I did bid for one for them, but I lost that auction because I think I was a little bit too... Uh, premature and putting in my last bid, I put it in about 20, 25 seconds before the end of the auction instead of waiting until the last five seconds like I usually do. I don't know what happened that day. Maybe I panicked a bit and I put my bid in too early and actually lost it. Someone came in and got it ahead of me. But it didn't matter. The girls went back to eBay and had another look and found one that they could buy outright. But they'd observed me doing the auction, and so I went looking for an article about how eBay auctions work, because, of course, they work differently from English auctions and Dutch auctions. So that uh, article's now in my notebook as well. I haven't done this yet, but I, al I might also add in the eBay uh, screenshot of the Wii console that they have bought the price and all the details as well as evidence of their transaction. They did a lot of comparisons, looking at high and low prices and adding in the postage, uh, seeing what each bundle offered and deciding which was the best buy, using their everyday maths. Now, once I started thinking about real-world maths experiences that I might be missing, my mind wouldn't shut down. I just uh, racing from one thought to another, busy, 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 trying to think of all the things that I am not recording in my Evernote notebooks, which I could be recording. And I, come, I came up with a few more ideas. For example, the girls are always checking the weather. Is it going to be a nice morning tomorrow for running before breakfast? Will we need to put on track pants or shorts? Will we need a hoodie? They're always checking the weather. I could get a screencast of the weather report. The app that we use also gives us the comparisons between years, the hottest month of the year, the, the coldest month of the year, the hottest year of the decade, the hottest year of the century. Data like that, all very interesting, all to do with numbers. So that's something else I could put in my notebook. Running itself, 
We do a lot of mental maths as we're running along, adding up distances of the loops that we do. We know approximately how far each loop is, and we're constantly adding them together as we run to make our totals. Do we want to run 5K today? Do we want to run a little bit further? I have a GPS watch, which makes it very easy for me. I don't really have to do that anymore. I can just glance down at my watch and see how far I'm going. But the girls don't do that. They have GPS watches, but they're watches aren't as good as mine and they need constant recharging and they're always forgetting to do it. So they rely on their mental maths. But using my GPS watch, I could get some printouts of our runs. My GPS watch is a Garmin and it gives a lot of data in the form of tables and graphs. I can even replay my run. There's lots of things like speed, pace, distance, altitude, even the temperature that we're running at in the morning. Is it a cold morning or is it a warmer morning? I think there's even wind speed in the data as well. So as well as using these printouts as help for our running as a training program maybe, we can also use them as evidence that we're using maths and my girls have had real life maths experiences. So I wouldn't print them out, I don't think, for them. I think I would take screenshots of them, just clip them into the notebook. I think if I go looking, I'm going to find even more real-life maths learning experiences, times when my girls are coming in contact with maths and I'm not even realizing it. I'm not taking full advantage of those times and recording them in my notebook. So I'm going to keep my eye on that if I discover any more real-life maths experiences as I'm using resources and doing things with my girls as they're following their interests, I'll let you know. Maybe you would like to uh, copy some of these ideas as well. I think the more we share our ideas, the more we can help each other so that we can get our registrations approved and so that we could all unschool without worrying about it. have one more thing that I want to share with you. How can we learn from our favorite TV programs or how can we record that as a learning experience for registration purposes? I think that's more the point because everything is a potential learning experience. But how do we translate that into the right language so that we can use that information one of the programs that we've been watching recently is Grand Designs. I don't know if you've seen this. Kevin MacLeod is the presenter of the British series. In each episode, he follows the progress of the building of a house, a grand design. I guess people tell him that they're going to be building a particularly interesting house. And he follows the progress of the building from the time that they put their plans into council maybe or lay the foundations, he goes out and we see the block of land before any building has been started. And hopefully by the end of the episode, we're walking through the front door with Kevin McLeod to see the finished building. Well, that's the hope. Sometimes things go wrong and the building isn't actually finished by the end of the episode. Some things that are common to every single episode. The people who are going to build the house always have grand ambitions. They always say they're going to spend less money than they actually end up spending. 
the buildings always take much more time to build than is at first thought. Yeah, the building goes over time. There's always things that go wrong. They find a water table just where they're going to put the foundations of the house, or they discover that an old heritage building doesn't actually have any foundations, and they were going to use that building as the basis of their new home. Things like that, or the weather's really bad, or the windows don't arrive. Enough things go wrong to make the program interesting. The design of some of the houses are very unique. Like there was a round house. Some of the houses are built in particular styles, like there was one that was built in the style of a castle. Others are eco-friendly houses. There was a house that was built underground, a house that was built on the edge of a cliff, or different sorts of homes. Apart from the British series, there's an Australian one too. We've been watching a few of those episodes because I found three series in our library a week or so ago. So we're having a Grand Designs Marathon at the moment. But what can I write in my records book for this? What are the girls learning as we're watching Grand Designs? Well, they're hearing about a lot of environmental issues. Some of the buildings are using eco-friendly building materials. Some people don't want to use concrete at all in their designs, or very little of it. Some homes are designed to have low impact on the environment, to be energy-saving maybe, some of them will have solar panels, and, and then there's the underground house that I was telling you about. They want to recycle their heat. There are designs for particular locations. Houses that are going to be built in high wind areas or on the top of a cliff. Some homes start life as a heritage house. So there's only certain things that the owners can do to their houses. We've talked about things like soil erosion and water logging coastal erosion, things like council plans and environmental permissions, heritage listing, what does that mean? We've watched people have disputes with council over plans because their homes don't fit in with all the other houses around them. So we begin to talk about community. Should we have the right to do whatever we like on our own piece of land, regardless of what other people around us are thinking of our homes? How do our homes impact other people? I'm sure I could come up with a lot of other things that the girls and I have learnt while we've been watching Grand Designs, which is a program made for a general audience, a lifestyle program that just screens in the evenings for a general audience, as I said. It's not particularly educational, although we've learnt a lot from watching it. And one of the most interesting things we've learnt from watching these programs is how people communicate and what sort of values they have. And we've compared it to our own values. Do we have the same values as the people who are building these grand designs? The other day we were driving the back way through town along a, a road that passes through paddocks and farmhouses and big properties. And there's a lovely old house that's up for sale at the moment. And we speculated how much the house would cost to buy. And we decided it would be well out of our price range. And one of my girls said, why do people spend so much money on a home? And all these grand design homes always go over budget into the millions. They spend a great deal of money and they go into debt to build their perfect home. Why do people want to spend so much money on a house? 
we decided that for a lot of people, they think if they have the perfect home, they will be perfectly happy. Their home is their castle. If they get that perfectly right, they'll move in and life will be exactly as they want. They'll be happy with their family, have everything they want. I'm not sure it works that way. We have lived in some pretty awful places, but we have been happy. I think that happiness depends more on the family. We, as long as you've got your family with you, you can be happy in any home whatsoever. You don't have to have a grand castle around you. But a lot of people are searching for happiness, and they're putting their hopes in a big home. So we've been able to talk about all these things from watching Grand Designs. We watched an episode where a man was adamant he wanted a round house. Yes, his grand design was a round house. Not totally round, it had round parts to it, and a round workshop for his aeroplane which he was building. His wife was against the whole plan right from the beginning. She didn't want a round house. She wanted a normal rectangular house, a house with corners where she could put her furniture up against a straight wall. And all through the program, she was expressing her doubts about this home. She was also expressing her doubts about the cost of the home. She thought her husband had underestimated how much the house would cost, and she was perfectly right. It went way over budget, and she didn't want it to go way over budget because she wanted them to be able to retire without debt. That was more important to her than having a unique home. Anyway, the husband just would not listen. He pressed on and he got his round grand design home. And at the end, Kevin McLeod interviewed them both and said to the wife, now you have your round house. Was it all worth it? Is it what you wanted? Do you like it? And she didn't really want to come out and say exactly what she thought. And he pressed a little and she said, no, it's not what I like. I would have preferred a rectangular house. And afterwards, the girls and I talked about how that man had put his house above his wife and how that can cause problems. She, she wasn't important enough to him for him to listen to her ideas and to modify his own and to come to some sort of compromise. All through the program, you could see that he didn't care less what she thought. And so that was a lesson to us. So we have been learning all sorts of things by observing the people who are building the houses. And some of them, yeah, are very interesting people. So Grand Designs, is there any maths in it? That was my next thought. And I actually found something. Yesterday, I did a little bit of Googling, and I found a generator which will allow you to make 2D and 3D models of homes. You can put together your dream house using this software. And in Grand Designs, this is what they do. They show you 2D and 3D plans of each home before it's built. So you can see what the owners are imagining. And these plans allow you to use particular measurements. You can have the imperial measurements or metric put together your house. So I'm sure the girls would enjoy using that. I mentioned that this morning. Their eyes lit up. I think it's something that they would like to do. Design their own house. And of course, measurement will come into that. That's maths. So I'll be clipping some of their designs, I think, into my notebook and calling it maths, as well as creative arts and also digital media.
I'm almost at the end of this week's episode. I just got one more thing that I want to talk about. But before I get on to that, I just like to do all the business stuff. Of course, you can find all the program notes at my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I'll put all the links to the art documentaries and other things that I've talked about today in a blog post on my blog. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that through iTunes, you could follow it through Podbean, or you could just follow my blog. I embed the podcasts there every week. You could also go over to my Pinterest boards. They're growing. I've created a few more boards and I keep adding things to my boards. So yes, you might find something interesting there. I could put those documentaries there too. So the last thing that I want to talk about. Last week we were talking about being different. Are our unschooling children different from most people around them? And Sophie, my 14-year-old daughter, said yes, she does feel different from most people around her. She doesn't really have any kindred spirits. She hasn't met any yet, though she hopes that she will do in the future. And so I've been thinking about kindred spirits. It is lovely to have that type of friend, the sort of people that you can relax with, who understand you. You don't have to explain what you mean about anything. You don't have to worry about revealing too much of yourself and then later on regretting it. Those are the really special type of friendships. But do we all have to be the same? Are other types of friendships important to us? Can we be friends with people who are different to us? This week I mulled that over in a blog post. Is it necessary we agree with each other's ideas? I'm sure there are a lot of people who read my blog or listen to my podcast who don't entirely agree with all my ideas. Is that okay? Do we have enough to share together so that we can be friends? I think we do. We, I don't think it is necessary for us to be totally the same. I think that we need people in our lives who are different. They challenge us, give us new ideas to think about. They tell us about things that we haven't heard about before. They make us stop and listen and, yes, think. Sometimes I have had my ideas changed by people who are different from me. If I am willing to stop and to consider their ideas seriously instead of dismissing them, I might learn a great deal. And I have in the past changed my ideas because of something somebody has told me. So yes, I think that it's quite alright for us all to be different. We can mull things over, we can share ideas, we can grow and learn from each other. So even if you aren't quite like me, or don't agree with all my ideas, I hope that you'll still keep reading my blog and listening to my podcasts, and maybe stopping by and discussing things together so that we can all learn. Well, that's my very last thing. So all I've got left to do is to thank you for listening to my podcast this week and to say, until next week, trust, respect and love unconditionally. Mm-hmm.